0: Welcome to Excel Transformations, a podcast for intense people. My name is Imi, and I'm here with you on a journey. Hi everyone, today we have Galit Atlas. Galit is an experienced psychoanalyst who has a special interest in the way we inherit our parents, grandparents, and even our ancestors' pain. In this highly enlightening conversation, we talked about what emotional inheritance and transgenerational trauma are, how we can inherit trauma from our parents without knowing, the role of defense mechanisms in our lives, such as dissociation and splitting, and why trauma could bring shame even when on the surface it doesn't make sense. Well, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I do. Now to Galit. Hi, Galit. Welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here today.
0: Absolutely. So I came across your work a while ago and I listened to and read some of your work. And I just thought this is such an important topic. And yet, although even clinicians don't really know about the depth of it. um, And I'm going to ask you a lot of questions Mm -hmm. about, you know, emotional inheritance is what you call it um and you know basically trauma that get passed down through generations and clinically sometimes we call that transgenerational trauma i'm sure we're going to go into all the jargons a bit later but before we start i would really love to hear a bit more about you so your name is pronounced galit i i mean part my ignorance. like where are you from and hmm. what's your story
1: So, I was born to a Syrian mother and an Iranian father uh, who immigrated to Israel when uh, they were um, six and seven years old, and that's where I was born, and then I immigrated, speaking of emotional inheritance, to the U.S. um, about 22 years ago, and since then, uh, that's where I live. I live in New York City, and Mm -hmm. I am... uh, I'm a psychoanalyst and a faculty member at the postdoctoral program for psychotherapy and psychoanalysis at NYU.
0: Awesome. Brilliant. I'm really glad that you are a psychoanalyst. And um, honestly, out of all kinds of schools of knowledge, I think personally, I get the most out of either psychoanalysis or depth psychology mm-hmm. from Carl Jung. And so that really informed my way of thinking. We have a lot to talk about. And certainly your knowledge and expertise in psychoanalysis has really informed your work and it really shows. So just to get our audience on the same page, what is emotional inheritance?
1: So emotional inheritance is the idea that emotions can pass down from generation to generation. and. That our struggles, our emotional struggles, uh, many times is related to our ancestors' experiences.
0: Ancestors? So, not even our direct parents, yes. Ancestors.
1: Ancestors, uh, yeah, not only our parents, but also our our, uh, great parents and sometimes grandparents and sometimes great-great-grandparents. I mean, you know, we're talking here, and probably you and I will talk about that more, but uh, I'm a clinician and I work with people. Uh, Part of what I found in my work is that when you sit with a client, with a patient, you actually sit not only with them, but you also sit with at least uh, two more generations back that oh, yeah. live inside them. Or in and, the room. Yeah, that are in the room without their parents and who their parents are and what happened to them and who their grandparents were and what happened to them is really, really important. And into that, we, I'm sure we will talk about new research um, on epigenetics that and tries to understand how many generations back uh, we can look and how the previous generations experiences and especially trauma, but not only trauma, impacts our emotional life.
0: I guess that's something that a lot of clinicians don't really think about because most people poke up one generation at most two, in the- you know, but I think very few people would go further. The idea of, I mean, is this different to what I understood as what what I call transgenerational, what we call transgenerational trauma? Because that is such a kind of jargony term. I think emotional inheritance is so much more explicit and easily understood.
1: And it also contains in it more than just transgenerational trauma. And and let me explain to your listeners, right? The idea of intergenerational transmission of trauma is something that uh, psychoanalysts started looking at uh, in the aftermath of the Holocaust. Uh, Those psychoanalysts were Jews who escaped Europe, many of them, and many of their patients were were Jews who survived the Holocaust. And those people started feeling that the next generation, so that was already in the 60s, in the late 60s, right, when the first research started um, publishing, being being published, they started thinking, we carry something, uh, something about the trauma that didn't happen to us impacts our lives and that was the first you know writing on that topic the first uh, conference i think was in 1968 or or nine um that started thinking about that so this is not a found? new idea right and part of what they were they found is that there is you know uh, maria torkin and, and um, Abraham, who wrote the, the, uh, the book on the phantoms of uh, of history, were really talking and saying that one quote that I like uh, from their work, and they're saying what haunts us are not the dead, right? And of course, they're referring to the Holocaust here, but the secrets that are left in our minds, Right. Uh, the the secrets, the unspoken secrets. It's what haunts us, and not only the dead people. And that, and I think that was the main idea. The main idea was really that there is something very devastating that happened that lives in the mind of the the parents or the grandparents, and that the children can actually understand and and not understand, but um, experience, feel. And of course, then the question is, wh- how does that happen? And we could talk about the many ways that we are, exactly. many paths to how that happened. But just to, to go back to your question about the emotional inheritance, emotional inheritance, the way I uh, frame it is is really, as you said, it's not just about uh, the trauma. It's about all the kinds of secrets and unspoken experiences And emotions that are not necessarily symbolized or communicated uh, directly, but that the next generation could experience, could feel, and that lives inside them.
0: When you say it lives inside them, that's really vivid. Basically, it affects their thinking, their feeling, how they feel, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or, Or not,
1: yeah, it is, it is who they are, right? If we believe that experiences shape who we are, that means that our parents' experiences shape who our parents are, but then inevitably who we are. That
0: sounds really mysterious.
1: Hmm. Oh. You know, it's interesting because you're right. It sounds really mysterious because, uh, and it's the right way to say it, even though you know, it's clearly not just mysterious. It is, uh, it's, but it feels mysterious because it's very enigmatic. It's yeah. something that is often uh, nonverbal. It is often something that we can, uh, it's hard to research. It's hard to put the finger on how that happens. So, So it feels mysterious. Yes. But in fact, I think that the research shows, and especially both, actually the research on epigenetics and the research on attachment, yeah. that uh, that our parents actually uh, communicate with us in in nonverbal ways, mm. and that children feel what their parents experience right feel what their parents well are
0: some common examples like i off the top of my head can think of someone it's it's a really mysterious thing for instance someone might be mm-hmm. anorexic like they can't take in food and maybe because their grandparents or somewhere in the ancestor that there's poverty it's something yeah. like that
1: absolutely mm. Absolutely. Well, what have they
0: found when it comes to the holocaust survivor what have they found
1: you know i think that again we're talking about multiple levels of uh, you know, multiple paths of of how that happens so one of that of course is is thinking is it is it about the um epigenetics and the expression of genes, and my research is really much more about attachment and about uh, nonverbal communication and about relationships, connections yes. between, which, which of course people always ask if it's if it's something that passed down and through spoken. the body in it's and a, how much of it is what just we basically nature. the way our parents
0: interact yeah. with us, the way they talk to us, the way the way right. observed. Mm-mm.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that is no, always both, yeah. and uh, I think that both all of us who research that uh, really respect the other. So, I mean, I research the the, the behavior and attachment and, and nurture, and the epigenetic, and I totally. See and appreciate and understand that it's not only that; that there is something that is probably passed down in mm-hmm. other ways that that is in our body, because obviously our body holds the trauma, which is related to mm-hmm. uh, our, um, you know, this our survivor system, our um, or, uh, stress hormones, mm-hmm. and and things like that. And, and the people that investigate and and uh, research. The epigenetics also understand that it is not just in the body, it is also in the communication, which is really interesting. You know, there is one research, for example, that both are doing on 9 uh, 11 mothers who have been pregnant in 9 uh, 11 and lost their husband. And I think, in, interestingly, both the attachment research that is done by mm-hmm. Dr. Beatrice Phoebe in Columbia University and uh, the epigenetics research that is done by uh, Rachel, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, uh, that is a is a very um, you know important researcher of epigenetics. Both of them find the same things. So what we see really is that we are, you know, the way I. Frame it mm. in emotional inheritance is my book is that know we, we are attached inside. to the people can who you raise can some
0: examples of things that and are we start our lives not secrets being secrets
1: differentiated from, we carry, from them but it's not, which means we that we feel them spoken. we know them from inside, right? And you no, know, the book has twelve chapters, and each chapter gives you a different example. so i'll I'll go to one of them, which yes, I please, think is give a, us a
0: taste
1: a, a taste, for example, uh, one of the chapters talks about uh, sexual abuse and how, a grandmother. It is the section on grandmother, and gra- on grandparents, and how the grandmother um, sexual abuse impacts her granddaughter's uh, experiences of the world, but also how she inherits the feeling of being sexually abused. And I go into the details there of how that how does that happen really, and then another uh another example where we talk about not just intergenerational trauma but things that happened to us before we were born things that we don't know and just feel and experience through our parents experiences and so i i talk in the book about uh, loss of siblings for example and the experience that have many times happened before we were born or in the beginning of our lives. And there is one uh, chapter, for example, about Noah. Uh, this guy that comes to therapy and he's feeling like he's obsessed with the dead with dead people that's what he said out dead My, people yeah his mother and he has always no said idea to him, why he's no idea why and his mother is telling him like stop with this these crazy ideas you have you have bizarre ideas bizarre ideas about that you and and one of those ideas or that he thinks he used to have a twin brother and his twin brother died. And he has all of these things that he he feels are, are fantasies. And of course, in therapy, we go and investigate those and try to understand something about his preoccupation with death and with dead siblings. To give you a little spoiler to your listeners, what we find after a while is that actually Noah wow. did have a brother and it was not a twin brother. It was an older brother who died uh, before he was born. Mm. And, and part of what we try really to understand in that specific chapter talks about is how one knows things that was, they were never told about. Mm. You know, and, and Noah's case is a good example for that, like knowing something. Mm. And, and what I call in the book, the ghosts of the unsaid and the unspeakable the form of those ghosts, of everything that was not said mm. and of the unspeakable, everything we're not allowed to talk about.
0: Mm. What about people who all their life I mean, how do you start exploring that with your clients when they come to you and say, I'm depressed. All my life, I don't want to be alive. I don't feel like I deserve a place in the world. I'm just sad. I have no idea why. How would you start exploring that with
1: them? You know, that's a very good question. Because in reality, you know, people, many people, or I would say even most people don't come to therapy to explore their emotional inheritance, Mm -hmm. right? They come to therapy because something hurts them right or something yes. happened to them or they're struggling with something uh, if it's separation if it's a divorce if it's a mm. loss if it's you know affairs or or yeah. and they have sim- what we call symptoms depression as you said or or headaches that somebody thinks they should go to a therapist for that or or anxiety so the truth is and, and it's interesting because since, since my book was published uh, many people come to me for the first time ever to say and say i want to i want to examine my emotional inheritance but that yeah. is a reaction right to reading uh, the book and i think the book does make people want to investigate it but that's usually not the reason why people come to therapy and when they come we don't necessarily start with you know with thinking that that's the only path yeah. it we but we do start with what's your first memory was And who are you and where are you coming from? Who are your parents? Who are your grandparents? What's your family story, right? And then who are you and why are you here, right? And that investigation of how, what part of it is about your own unconscious, what part of it is about your intergenerational unconscious, what part of it is trauma that happened to you, what part of it is trauma that happened to your, right? This is a very, very delicate and usually also long investigation
0: and sometimes people don't really know
1: right right and we cannot know for them right and i think that is that's the essence of that journey it's a slow journey where we really unpack layers of existence of our own trauma of our family trauma of the world trauma, right? But these days, we're very aware of, uh, it's not just Holocaust, right? It's racism, it's slavery. It's, uh, you know, and, and now it's over, even global warming. You know, there is COVID. There, is, you know, there are also social traumas. And, and so there are so many layers of unpacking that we're doing. And maybe one important thing to say is that those are usually interacting with each other. They don't exist separately. You know what I mean? Uh, Our childhood trauma somehow is in communication with our parents' and grandparents' trauma. And this the COVID, right, somehow is in communication with our previous traumas. It awakens them. It allows us to some degree to process them. And it also re-traumatizes us. So all of those there are layers of traumas that are always unconsciously in some dialogue with each other.
0: Mm. Does it make a difference whether or not our parents are still alive?
1: In what way? What do you mean?
0: I mean, do we directly go and ask them? Right.
1: What kind of
0: I mean like you know, those history projects we did when we were a kid.
1: Yeah, I see that. I see what you're saying, because, you know, when, when I said ancestors, it's like, it feels like, wow, how can I even know what happened to my ancestors? I know my parents. I don't know all of these people that I sometimes never met, right? And I think in that sense, on one hand, it is easier and on the other hand, it's harder. And I'll tell you why. It is easier because sometimes we can actually go and ask, Right. It is more tricky because the fact we're going to ask doesn't mean we're going to get the right answers. It doesn't mean we're going to get the truth because many families hold a lot of secrets and things that are unspeakable, as I said, and they don't want it. So I think that in that way, there is what the you know what we call these days a lot of gaslighting around secrets. So you can come and ask and gaslighting get
0: gaslighting around secrets. Can you say more?
1: I think the, the Noah story is a very good example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Noah senses something and he comes to his mother and his mother says to him, You crazy. What are you talking about? And then years later we understand that actually Noah was the opposite of crazy. Right? He was so connected to reality. If if we define craziness about, uh, around disconnection from reality, right? If that's the definition, he's actually very, very, very connected to reality. He actually knows the reality, yeah. right? And so the gaslighting is about saying, "No, what, what are you talking about? This doesn't exist." And and that's part of what we are confronted with when we talk about family yeah. secrets. And so in that sense. Uh, I totally agree that going and asking and, and is a very profound thing because what we know is that we often collude with family secrets. We don't ask, right? We don't go to our parents and ask them what really happened here and here and here, where, where there are gaps in the narratives, right? So there is something about asking. And I have to tell you one of the most moving things that happened to me and um, related to this book is hearing from people that they have a uh, family book clubs. Family the, book clubs. Isn't that isn't that brilliant? Family book <laughs> clubs? They're reading the book together as a family and talking about it, which brings a lot of yeah. um you know, we know the idea of book clubs, but so family group book club was that very new unusual. to me. Right. And I think those special families that really say, let's talk about our family. It belongs to all of us. Mm. We work, we are a system, Mm. right? We are all carrying something and each of us carries something slightly different for the rest of us. Why do
0: children carry their family history and secrets for them? Is it their way of loving?
1: It's their way of loving, it's their way of being loyal and but mostly I think it's their way of not dysregulating their parents, not exposing them not to dysregulating
0: something. Dysregulating their parents.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Not dysregulating the parents, not exposing their parents to something that right, the the child from a young age knows where not to step. Right? Where not to go. And they know that through their Parents' body language and through their parents, uh, you know, uh, some layers of communications where the through the gaps where the parents do not answer questions, and they know okay that is a question that should not be answered, right? And that's how we start colluding as a system, right? And in the book, I'm, I'm telling my own story about my mother's brother, who drowned in the ocean when she was um, ten years old and he was fourteen, and. Uh, in our family, that was not a secret. And yet, it was something that we didn't have permission to talk about because all of us were afraid of my mother.
0: I was about pain. to ask you that because your book was very aptly titled A Therapist for Patients and the Legacy of Trauma. So, the therapist is in there, and I'm assuming that's you
1: yeah me as a therapist as a, as a human, right? and mm. and my my own family is there, and my relationships with my patients and the way I use myself and um, and my own psychology uh, in understanding my patients, in connecting to them, in understanding their defenses, in colluding with them and dissociating against okay colluding
0: with them and dissociating with them Mm -hmm. you need to say more so our audience can relate to it how do we collude with this whole family i i you know i understand what you're saying yes i would like you to expand on that like how do we unconsciously collude with something that is toxic to us
1: yeah, you know this is what we all do. and uh, I think so, right?
0: Too. Yeah, you think I was so? supposed to ask you that. Are there families without this?
1: I don't think there are. Actually, I think we all have secret contracts with each other, and I think secret what do contracts.
0: Our, I love that.
1: Right, we have secret contracts with each other, and I think that even. Therapists and patients have secret contracts. And that's what I mean by colluding and dissociating, right? Because, and there are some, the chapter on my mother's brother is a good example for that, because how do I collude with that patient who comes in and tells me that she lost her brother? And in that moment, I'm totally unaware that this patient is my mother, right? My mother lost her brother almost in the same age that my patient did. And yeah. so unconsciously, it is almost as if my mother comes to therapy, right? And I'm her therapist. But at first, i I'm not only that I don't know that, I don't even remember that my mother lost her brother in that. And for, for a long time, I treat that patient as if something horrible happened to her. And it's the first time I hear about something so painful. And only later, and that is what I call, right? That is what we call dissociation, right? I become dissociative. I collude with her around. And
0: dissociative means you don't. Is you no longer conscious that we're doing that? Yes. Because I think when you say yeah. dissociation, sometimes people think of a clinical dissociation where they zone out. But I think what you mean is it got split off. It's a form of splitting.
1: Yes, it's a it's a defense mechanism, right? It's a, a dissociation is when something happens to it and we don't fully uh, feel it or know it. We are disconnecting from it. And so it's there. It's not like if you told me that my mother lost her brother, I'm not going to tell you that I don't remember it. Obviously, I do remember it and I know it. But somehow in that moment, dissociation is that when that memory becomes peripheral, so peripheral and so outside of my of my consciousness that it is almost outside of my system. It's it does, it's I don't include it in my memories. Right. And so in that moment, there is, of course, the question, why do I do that? Do I pro- who am I protecting here? It's, def- it's the defense mechanism, right? Am I protecting myself? Am I protecting my patient? Am I protecting my mother, maybe? Right? Yeah. And not knowing that I'm going back and because that's what I'm used to do. We never talk about it, so I never even remember it. Right? So there, all of those questions are questions of... That are related to connections between people. How do we right? I mean, where
0: does it all start? Is it a stretch to say it starts when we were conceived?
1: Or before that? You know, I think that's what we are all investigating, and definitely there are theories that say that it started uh, mm. in the womb. Some theories are actually saying, and some research is about the sperm and the alternations, you know, in the sperm, and you know, and the, and of course the, the the expression of genes. It's like it's about how our, you know, it's uh, our genes are modified and mm. um, uh, the the expression mm. is uh, changing. So. We're uh, the the impact of the environment on the on the expression of genes, right? And so that is, of course, before we were born. If mm-hmm. we right in that investigation, um, but the truth is that this is a, a, a relatively new research, and and we're you know people are are investigating many many paths, and and I believe that the answer is uh, in many. Uh, you know, like every very complicated answer, that the answer is it, that it happens in many layers and uh, and that it happens in some ways that are biological and in many other ways that are um, uh, environmental. Environmental, I mean, the psychological environment. Uh, I'm
0: just thinking about in general, what is the role? Because we we are, you know, you, as therapists, you as analysts, you know the language of defense mechanism. And it always sounds horrible when say we have defense mechanism, when actually it's just mm-hmm. a coping mechanism. Things like splitting, like we split off things into either good camp or bad camp. Mm-hmm. What is the role of defense mechanism? Like really, actually, you've you mentioned before that we suppress our memories to protect our parents. Right. What are the defenses? Are in place when it comes to emotional inheritance. What about spitting? Is it in the picture?
1: You know, uh, you know, it's a it's a very good um, I, you know it's a very good thought about defense mechanism because the truth is that I love the word defense mechanism. Do you? I, think people I do. Just
0: feel always when I say that people always think I'm criticizing them
1: because you see because I think people sometimes confuse it with telling them that their defense yeah yeah but defense mechanism is a brilliant thing if you think about because it meant to protect us to defend us from something where we are protecting ourselves and often we really really need that protection and uh, as children especially so very often when we talk about a defense mechanism we talk about things that that saved our lives as children right and if you talk, you ask me what we talked about dissociation we're talking about idealization that we, you know what is idealization is like thinking that some it's it's denying uh, any ambivalence and any negative things making something be be very 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 good why defense mechanism often there because it it protects us from anxiety Mm. Or it protects us from breakdown. So, very often, those amazing defenses that helped us survive as children become a problem for us as grown-ups, right? Everything that, like I, I was just talking to a patient who was tell, we were talking about how frightened she was as a child and how her defense mechanism was to be functional and, mm. and I, uh, right, and not, uh, to, then to be dissociative. When you say functional, put, do you mean be useful to other people or just be being- useful? To, I mean, the defense itself was to be dissociative, right? To not, yeah, yeah, to yeah. not, to to be disconnected in some ways and mm. not remember her her and pain. And so
0: many people live their life half dissociated.
1: Oh yeah, that's a very very common defense, and I think that what happened was that she became somebody very very functional that has a lot of pain, but the pain is not accessible to her or to others. She's very alone with it and often doesn't even feel it right? And all of that makes her less alive, less, less connected to people. She starts paying a price for those defenses, right? And so now we have a dilemma. How can we help her, right, with all to, to, to change that defense? Because everything that really, really, really helped her as a child is actually blocking her now. I
0: was going to so, ask. So, what's wrong with having a defense
1: then? <laughs> you see, I think that originally they're not. It's not wrong. I mean, that's why defenses originally really save lives, right? Good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then we realize that they also limit us, right? Because if I if I wear a very very heavy armor, then nobody can get to me, and nothing sure. can get to me, and I become isolated and lonely, or I can't have relationships really, and nobody knows me. Because I'm right, right, I'm behind this armor. And so I think that people start realizing that some of those defenses don't work so well anymore. And we need to not necessarily undo them, but maybe replace them. And well, maybe maybe look yeah. at them.
0: It's an expired strategy as I call
1: exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly.
0: What's the, the most common defense that you see in your clients or patients?
1: I think dissociation is definitely one of the most common ones, but also omnipotence. Omnipotence. And in the book,
0: I- okay, you need to expand on that. Because I uh-huh. know it's a state that we used to be in when we were a child, and it's almost healthy because we want to feel like we can control our mom. Mom, give me milk.
1: Mom, mm-hmm. go away.
0: It's all in our control. So how is that
1: a defense now? That's exactly right. That. As children, omnipotence is a developmental stage, right?
0: Yeah. We
1: want because if we feel out of control, then it means the world is not safe. If we cannot control our mom to give us milk, uh, then right, with the illusion that we control her. Of course, omnipotence is illusion, uh, is an illusion. If we can control the mom, then we might die. Right What if she doesn't come to give us right? So we need that illusion of being om- of omnipotence, the illusion that we can control others. And as grown-ups, we use it in the same way. We use it when the, we feel the world is not safe, when we need to have the illusion that we control things and we could do anything, right? Because otherwise we're too frightened. otherwise we're too right and and for example, you know what is a, is a very, very common form of omnipotence? Uh, guilt.
0: Yes, Somebody, yes, yes. You know what see, I mean? See, I really get you, what you're saying, and I'm so glad you're saying it. And I I don't know, I want you to expand on it, but I also feel the urge to kind of.
1: You understand share what, it, and see, let me I explain do, to you. Because you
0: feel like it's your fault. You are so powerful that everything uh-huh. is your fault. Yes. If someone in the far away children dying in Africa is because you are so powerful that you're supposed to be able to save them and you can't right,
1: right. <laughs> and think about it's, it's exactly that right and think about kids right and of course we do it as grown-ups all the time mm. children then their parents get divorced for example that's something something everybody can relate to right because we all know that children can blame themselves right mm-hmm. and Obviously, it's not the child's uh, fault, right? As grown-ups, we also know that. But as a child, we could understand why that is a useful defense. I'm supposed to be
0: able to save my mother. I'm supposed to be able to make my mum happy. She's not happy. Therefore, it must be my fault.
1: Right. And why is it my fault? Because if it's not my fault, I can't fix it. I can't do anything about it. It means that the world is could be chaotic and bad and you know and I can be and I'm I'm just hopeless and helpless in that world. I cannot do anything. It makes me feel helpless. So what is the defense against helplessness? Omnipotence. It's all my fault. So it's a form of omnipotence and we can of course give many many other examples of how omnipotence appears in our lives as grown-ups. And in the book, I go, I go through that. What are some
0: forms? I think when you say that, most people think of narcissism instead of guilt. They look mm-hmm. so different, like someone who thinks everyone is their fault, and they therefore don't take up space. It's very right. different from someone who, what we call narcissistic, right, right, right,
1: right. Yeah, it's not narcissism. It, not I think that's thinking that it's not necessary. it could be narcissism, right? But it's not necessarily narcissism. It's sometimes it is just a, a defense mechanism, a real defense against helplessness. And the more helpless you are, the more omnipotence you would make yourself. I just yeah. think it's
0: really hard for people to get their head around Low self-esteem and omnipotence, you know, because Mm -hmm. of the what the word literally means in English language. I get you, I get you, but that's the glory and the perils of psychoanalysis. Like people don't, you know, it's it's hard to draw these things.
1: Yeah. It's hard and yet I feel like people really get it, you know, when they, I mean, if they don't know it, it sounds like big words, right? But the minute they read, you know, in people read the book and they're like, oh my God, I realized that this is what I do, right? And the minute you you explain it in simple words, it's the, you know, the aha moment comes very quickly, very quickly. You think like, oh, so this is what I'm doing, or this is what my mother was doing, or this is what my children are doing, you know, and you immediately recognize uh, and understand it's you see that's the difference between thinking that somebody tells you that you're defensive, and between really understanding why you do what you do, why we do what we do, which is uh, which comes from an empathic place because we we are all afraid of helplessness, right? And we all try to find and maneuver ways, uh, you know, against it. Find ways to to feel less helpless.
0: I love how I love the way our conversation has gone. It's gone from emotional inheritance to much more rich concepts in psychoanalysis. Let's talk about I'm mindful of time and we'll probably speak for another 10 minutes if that's okay with you. I mean, okay, so let's talk about emotional inheritance and shame. Does shame just get passed down or is there like a complex pathway?
1: That's a good question. You know, shame passed down. It's not It's not only passed down. We also are capable of creating it ourselves, right? But we definitely uh, sense our parents' shame and hold it as our own. And shame is also very much related to trauma.
0: I know. Be- I was to ask right? you about that. So, see, I think... Again, it's one of those things that is not explicit in the beginning. Surely, we haven't done anything wrong. We were traumatized. We were the victim of the trauma. Why would we have shame?
1: You know, it's a perfect timing for this question because it ties so beautifully to the previous discussion about helplessness. Mm. There, we When we feel helpless, it evokes enormous amount of shame. And I think many times uh, being a victim is a shameful position for people because of the, the profound helplessness. We're talking here about being a victim. It means that really something horrible happened to you and you could not defend yourself. And you, and you are so helpless and so, and I think that it brings up, it breaks you down, right? It shatters you. And it brings up a lot of shame about, so to speak, not being strong enough, not being right, not being able to protect yourself, and all of those feelings that are very much related to, um, you know, to, to links between trauma and shame, and that, of course, the next generation um, experiences their parents or as. Filled with shame and and often inherit that. So what we see that, and I think that goes back to your first question about uh, intergenerational trauma versus emotional inheritance. The framework of emotional inheritance is really that we inherit the emotion that is right that is passed down, and and that is related to our our conversation, which I love. That is not just about trauma; it's about emotions. Right? A defense mechanisms about the human mind.
0: I'm sure you get this a lot. So, how do I get rid of shame?
1: <laughs> you know, I find that it's the hardest thing, actually, because the truth is that even in therapy, when we talk about shame, we feel ashamed. It's it's one of those feelings that become uh, that that are reenacted and uh, if you if you come to your patient and you say i feel that you are ashamed you're going to shame them and so there are it's a very very difficult thing to talk about and i think sometimes uh, sharing shame is one way you know and understanding that we are you know and framing shame as, as a human condition and 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 sometimes even self disclosure self disclosure of therapists uh, which is very controversial in psychoanalysis uh, is a way to to really yeah, i think when it comes to shame it's it's very uh, I don't want to use the the word useful because I don't want to make it a technique, like you know, a tricky thing we try to uh, force our patients to talk about shame and and make believe that we. It's it's really sharing a human condition. It's and I think that's what I was also doing in the book. I'm, I mean, I'm not presenting myself as a uh, you know as a as a healthy knowing all therapist. I'm I'm a human being. I have my own pains. I have my own shame. I have my own uh, struggles and my own defense mechanisms, and I think that's a way to to start talking about shame.
0: How do you start talking about shame? <laughs> you can't possibly ask your clients, do you right. feel shame? Yes, and
1: I think it really depends on uh, some people already did some some work, and they come to you with. <laughs> very, very clear awareness of shame. And I think the beginning of talking about sure. anything is awareness, right? Is not resolving things. It's not um, giving answers. It's, uh, right, it's, it's, it's and, just...
0: And, and, yeah, and I'm sorry to deviate away a little bit from what we're talking about, but on this topic, I really want to ask you something. Do so you find a lot of clients are very very anxious about your blank screen?
1: About the blank screen,
0: or any blank screen? Yeah, when you sit there and you don't say anything, because mm. I have a lot of clients who feel extremely uncomfortable with any seconds. You know, silence. this
1: this is a, a question that I could talk about uh, for the whole hour, because <laughs> because okay, sorry it. about that. I'll give, yeah, yeah exactly. I okay. give you, I give you the digest <laughs> answer, as they say, because because in the history Please, of psychoanalysis, you. you know, we, uh, that uh, the 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 blank screen was a useful uh, way of working because the understanding mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. that whatever the patient feels, they will project on you or talk to right, and that and that the the, the, the therapist's feelings and who they are as people can confuse the patient or burden them with something and and that sometimes is still the case. The difference in our theory is that we switch from a one-person psychology to a two-people psychology, and the relational psychoanalysis, which is the school of analysis that I'm teaching and practicing, really embraces that. What does that mean in simple words for your listeners? It means that the therapist comes as a human with the understanding that my psychology could – I still think that telling the patients everything is a burden on them – and that's the, we are the we're not talking about hierarchy anymore as we said before but we're talking about about um, asymmetry it's not a symmetrical relationship it is a relationship and i'm here to understand you and i have a therefore i have a different role and i have a different responsibility but we switched to a model where there is mutuality which means that I come to you and talk to you as a human being and we and I and I can love you and I can have other feelings about you and I can right and I use my psychology as well and we assume and therefore many of us do not work with we don't even believe in blacks you know in in blank screens mm-hmm. uh, still we try not to burden our patients and and uh, you know and and make this relationship too symmetrical because uh, people have people in their lives they don't come to us in order to have symmetrical relationships right? oh,
0: of course we won't want to be stuck right. talking about ourselves and our trauma right. some degree of you know mm, co-humanity might be helpful
1: yeah, yeah I mean it's that's exactly balance. right I love I love that the co-humanity right and and we talk about mutual just came up with that word
0: it's not it's not a love technical it. word yeah I l- Oh, thank you. Oh, okay. So if someone is curious about the idea of the secrets they carry, things that they have always felt but are not able to verbalize, where would you point them to start? Is there like a short, maybe even a meditation or like a short reflection that you can guide them towards?
1: Uh, You know, I think that where we start is always with self reflection and and just trying to uh, create ask questions ask ourselves what is it that we are looking for what is it that i am feeling and i always feel that it's a um, it's a very do you hear me because you were you were frozen
0: I don't know why. I'm Everything, is fine. Okay. Everything is fine. Okay, that's fine. confused
1: me. So maybe edit that a little bit. I'll answer it again. Okay. Uh, because I feel that what we're doing is really, uh, the whole process of uh, therapy for me is about self-reflection. It's about self-reflection. That's where we, right? That's where we start. It's, it's about creating, not giving answers, but but framing questions. And for me, that is one of the, places where we start
0: self-reflection
1: that's <laughs>
0: vague would there be one or two questions they can start asking themselves if I yeah, were to you know you it's not
1: bit. it's far from the way i work you know because i for me the work is never self-help work it's always a, a work of mm. uh Yeah, it's It's always always relational. relational. It's always a way of really like, and I think it's interesting, right? Because to me, relational work, even my book is a relational work, right? When I, there is something about, Mm. uh, when people ask me, what was your goal about writing this book? Uh, My goal was not to teach you anything. It wasn't to give you what people sometimes say about self-help book, give you tools. Uh, That is not my goal. My goal is to bring you with me into an emotional journey. That helps you think about your life, that helps you reflect, have self reflection, look, read something and say, huh, maybe I'm doing that too. Or, oh, I understand something about myself. To me, that is the emotional journey that I am inviting. It's beautiful.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. There are so many more questions I want to ask, but maybe I have to get you to again. You know, I loved our conversation. Mm. It was
1: very, very meaningful. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Actually, yes. one last question what would, break, what would breaking the cycle of trauma bring us?
1: What would what break, breaking the cycle of trauma bring us? I think that the one answer to that, is new possibilities
0: <laughs> that sums up everything new possibilities i guess for ourselves hmm. for our next generation
1: yeah for ourselves and for the next generation exactly new possibilities new ways of of being in this life and not just the automatic ways that we inherited or or learned
0: yeah automatic way is such a good word we just usually respond. Mm, We react rather than respond automatically.
1: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah. So what's next for you? Are you still, do you still have energy for this subject or have you moved on to some new inquiry?
1: You know, at this point, I am publishing this book in 19 countries. (gasps) And so I am just started, it's just started being published in many places and I go, Sometimes travel, but most of the time I do uh, Zoom and online virtual stuff in different languages. Very, very interesting to see and learn how different cultures respond to the same material. And you won't be surprised, I'm sure, that um, every culture takes it slightly different, processes it slightly different, and that there is also a cultural uh, perspective on that topic so that's where I am right now really understanding something about the cultural piece in in each of my publications in uh, different countries and and teaching you know I I teach that um course to clinicians
0: oh beautiful well thank you for doing what you're doing thank you so much thank you all right then I think I probably let you go would you be open to me having another conversation with you if I have more energy and libido. Of course,
1: of course. course. Oh, all
0: right. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you so, yes.
1: Thank you so, so much. No problem.
0: Okay, have a good day. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. For more, please head to eggshelltherapy.com. There you will find more stories, articles and resources for people just like me and you. Bye now!
1: Keep putting one foot in front of the other Moving
0: forwards, never looking back Just one more foot in front of all those countless others And we're there i Jen-